I have the privilege of speaking a few Sunday evenings in the next few weeks, and I'd like to do a little series on um, the letters that Christ wrote to the churches. He wrote to seven churches in the book of the Revelation, and he had a message for each of them. And I would like to, over the next weeks that I'm um, with you, just to look at them. This evening I'd like to look at the author of the letters and then the first of the letters and then in subsequent weeks we'll look at them in groups of two just so we get an overview of this. The great thing about these letters that Christ wrote, first of all they were written by the resurrected Christ. This was an appearance to John on the Isle of Patmos and um, it was there. We have appearances of Christ prior uh, during his between his resurrection and his ascension. We have other appearances of Christ subsequent to his ascension. Paul on the road to Damascus would be one such one. And also this appearance that John had, which we recorded in the book of the Revelation. And they are vital messages because there is only one person who truly knows what a church is like. And there's only one person who truly knows what you're like. And you'd be glad to know it's not me. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important we look at these letters and understand what are the priorities for God. We will all have different priorities within this congregation. Some of you, the priority is evangelism. Great. For others of you, it's prayer, intercession. For others of you, it's missions. We all have different priorities. Every one of them is righteous. Not one of them is unrighteous. They're just what God has laid upon our heart. But in these letters, we begin to understand the things that are important to the Lord Jesus. And we bring ourselves in line with that. So if you have your Bible, I'm reading from um, John's, uh, sorry, Revelation, the last book in the Bible. If you go to Genesis and start to the back, I'll be finished before you get there. So go to the back and work forward. And the last book is the book of the Revelation. Um, we're going to have a, a quite a, a substantial reading this evening. I'm going to do it in two parts. Um, but then on subsequent weeks, our readings will be a little shorter. I make no apology for reading Scripture. Scripture it tells us not to ne- neglect the public reading of Scripture. So no apology. I'm just letting you know that I haven't just keep talking for the sake of it here. Okay. It's John the Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me pause there. What happened to John was he was exiled and sent to the Isle of Patmos. Now my understanding is there were sulfur mines there and many Christians were sent there um, because of their faith and the sulfur mines to work there. So it wasn't a, a pleasant place at all. So that's where John is. Then it says there, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, write a scroll, what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned round, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. 
His head and hair were white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held up seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And behold, the keys of death and... Sorry, and and, be, and I hold, pardon me, the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. A mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. What a reading. Let me just unpack that just for a few moments to give us a little bit of background before we see what Jesus had to say to the churches. First of all, the lampstands and the stars were speaking of the churches. Now, there were seven churches. Now, we've got to understand here, this was churches in a geographical area, not necessarily just in one place. So it could have been a letter to the churches in Middlesex, Derbyshire, Yorkshire, uh, etc. So it was to a, a... a group of churches. Now, how we understand these letters is important. Forgive me for pausing at this point. You might think, oh, I haven't come all the way in just to hear this. Well, I'm sorry, you're going to hear it anyway. Okay. Um, We can interpret these letters in different ways. They can be interpreted as to a particular congregation. Okay. They can be interpreted to a group of churches. I was a regional superintendent for a period of time. I had about a hundred and something odd churches. It it could have been a letter to my region. But it could also be a letter to us as individual Christians. So there is an application of this that can touch each of us. It can challenge us as a church. Where are we in this? What, what, What would Christ write to this church? What would his priorities be? Secondly... To the Elam movement of which we are a part. What letter would God write to the Elam Pentecostal churches of Great Britain? What would, what would he write to us? But maybe more applicable to us is this. If Christ was to write a letter to me, what would he praise me for? What would he correct me for? And what advice would he give me to put those matters right? Okay, so there we are. That's the the purpose of this. First of all, we see Christ in verse 13 among the candlesticks. It says there was someone there like the Son of Man. Well, that's a title from the book of Daniel. It speaks about, it's a title given to deity, one like the Son of Man. We see Jesus glorified there. We have a a glimpse of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before him and his brightness, and we see it reflected, pardon the pun, we see it here in the Revelation. And so we find that the place was the candlestick. So Jesus is seen in his glorified Um, personage walking among the candlesticks Jesus loves his church I could get emotional now how I feel so strong Jesus loves his church and you and I we are loved individually yes but we are loved as his church 
And here we have, of all the things Jesus could be doing, he's walking amongst the churches. He's looking. How are they getting on down at Kensington Temple? How are they getting on in Derby? How are they getting on in Birmingham? What's happening? You know, what? He's amongst us. And that's a great encouragement to us, particularly in times maybe of challenge, as we've been through as a nation, as a church, with lockdown, whatever else. You know, where has Jesus been in all this? Let me tell you where he's been. He's been where he's always been, in the midst of his people and his church. Always there, watching, seeing what will take place. But then he's described as having a long robe. He's described also of having a golden sash. And of course, the long robe speaks of his priestly office. He now intercedes for us. We see his priestly robe and we see his golden sash that speaks of kingship and we see his lordship in that. So the one walking among the candlesticks is none other than the great high priest, is none other than the, the king of kings. It's as if God is saying, I have every right to look at your church. I have every right to look in your life. You're my children, you're my people. I have every right to walk amongst you and to diagnose and to assess and to bring about a place where you can grow in Christ and bring more glory to me. And the one who walks among the churches, the one who is amongst the candlesticks, is none other than the risen Christ, the one who died for us and gave himself for us. And he is as much in love with us in this chapter as he was when he was hanging on the cross paying for our sins. The great thing about the love of God is this. You'll never be loved more tomorrow than you're loved now, and you were never loved more yesterday than you are now. His love is the most constant thing. The most constant thing in my life is his love. And it's the same in yours. And so as he walks amongst the churches, in his priestly robe, in his royal sash, he's there to say, I have every right to be here. I have every right to write to you about what concerns me. There's talk of his character. His head is um, of white hair. Um, we find that that speaks of his holiness. His eyes are like blazing fire, penetrating insight. His voice is like a rushing waters, powerful. And then lastly, it speaks about his mission. Out of his mouth came a sword, which was the word of God. And we see that in Ephesians. We see that also in Hebrews 12, it says there, for the word of God is living and active, and here it comes. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We sadly judge people by their actions. God goes a step further, and that often will show a heart, no doubt about it. But we find here, we find that the sword goes deeper into motive and into the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So here we have Jesus walking amongst the candlesticks. Here we have Jesus coming to his church and saying, I'm going to write you. I want to tell you where you're good. I want to tell you where there's a challenge. Now, each of the letters follows a similar pattern. The first is a description of Christ. In each of the letters, there's some words to do with him. Very important that we begin with Christ. And then there is a word of approval or co commendation. And then there is a word of correction. So he identifies himself in the letter. He then commends them where he can. And then he says, but hang on a minute. There's something I need to talk to you about. 
And how beautiful, how gentle he will deal with us. He will remind us, first of all, of who he is. And then he will say, Gordon, you did well then. I say, thank you, Lord. But I'm not so sure about that Sunday night in August when you went to KT. That's now, by the way. No. You know, it's nice to think that he commends. I hope you're not one of these persons that only can find fault. You know, you know, I hope you're not one of these people that you'll come to a service and you're sitting there and you're hoping there's something you can moan about. Well, if you do, moan about the sermon. You know, I'm not bothered. You know, please don't. Let's follow this pattern. Let's commend people when they do well. We've had Andrew here from our youth and children's work. Now, I know he's a youth worker. It's easy to tell because he's got no socks on. And he's really trendy, you see. If he was an old man like me, he'd have a pair of socks on. Right? But that's why he's trendy, because he's got no socks on. It might be that he's poor. So if anybody, if anybody like to take an offering for him, we'll buy him a pair of socks. You won't get them till Christmas, Andrew. <laughs> but you see, let's commend. Let's commend. Why don't we give the youth workers and children's workers in our church a round of applause now? <laughs> now, we've commended him. Now, let me tell you what I'm not happy about. No, no. <laughs> There's nothing I'm not happy about. I'm sad to say that because of the time schedule, I'm not, I'm not being able to visit the, the, the youth work. But, you know, Jesus comes and does a commendation. Look, you're good at this, but there's something that... And do you know what? That's not threatening because of who it is. Now, there are some people that will come and will criticise us and we, we, we think, who do you think you are to say this? And some of the time, they've got no right to do it, really. And we can get a bit upset with it. But how can you get upset with the one who died for you on the cross? How can you get upset with his assessment when he's none other than the son of God? So each of the letters, as I mentioned, comes with this. First, there's a description of Christ. That is the author of the letter. Secondly, there's a word of approval. Secondly, there is a message of correction. Then there is a command or, or encouragement. Last of all, so that they can improve in the area where they have failed. So that's what we need to do and look at these letters. I don't get, I get emails all the time now, but I used to get letters a long time ago. And I don't know about you, but I always used to want to know, look at the end of the letter to see who wrote it before I read it. And you say, well, I never did that. Well, you're just not as odd as me, are you? But I get this letter. I thought, I wonder who this is. I look at the postmark and think, I don't know anybody that lives in Dartmouth. You know, right, or if there is a post in Dartmouth, I don't know. Um, I don't know. And then I, I read the letter. Ah, it's from George. Then I read the letter. So at the beginning of each of these letters, Christ identifies himself again. Because these are in letters, you have to imagine this, that John is writing down that will be sent to these churches. We've got to have that in our minds. Now, we can't think about letters and stamps and envelopes, but scrolls. But if you have that in your mind, it will open up the letter in what is being said. So let's look at Ephesus. The time is moving on, but we've got time to spend this. Verse chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, who is the angel? 
Do you write letters to angels? I'm not sure. But most will believe that the word angel could be translated messenger. And they actually, uh, and I think I'm going down this road, doesn't mean to say I'm right. Do some study, and if you disagree, that is allowed. But I think it was to the pastor or the leaders of each of the churches. They were called angels. They were called messengers. They were the people who were caring for the church. And when you think about who the letter was written to, that would be the obvious place to write. I want you to write a letter to Kensington Temple and send it not to Gordon Neal. No, no, send it to Colin Dye. Because he is the... Are you listening, Colin? You're the angel. (laughs) You'll go, yes, Gordon. Um, But in that way. So that's it. So the angel is not a heavenly being. You may not agree, but that's the great thing about it. We can disagree about things and study them. So the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So he's writing to a congregation. And then, first of all, following our plan, he identifies himself. He says, first of all, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the the seven golden lampstands. So he identifies himself. So I hold the churches, because in our previous reading, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he's holding, I believe, the leadership in his hand, and he's walking amongst the churches, and he's coming to them, and he's, I'm saying, this is who I am. This is how involved I am in Kensington Temple, that the leadership are in my hand, the angels, the messengers, the pastors, they're in my hand, and I'm walking amongst this candlestick. I'm looking to see what things are really like. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lamps. I know your deeds... He says there, I know your deeds, um, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Wow, what a commendation. What an approval. What is he saying there? First of all, they passed the test. They passed the test of service. Your hard work. I don't know a church, and I, as I say, I was a regional superintendent for some years. I don't know a church that grew where someone wasn't working hard. This idea, you know, that churches can grow and, and it's just you just sit back, say a prayer, and it'll happen. I, I haven't seen that. I see people spending time with young people. I see other people rehearsing their music. I see other people arranging a building. I see other people studying and preparing messages. I see you taking the time to get on a bus or a train or a car and to come into God's house. And God says to them, first of all, there, he commends them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. So he knows what they were doing in this church. He knew what the Ephesus was. Now, I've actually been to Ephesus on holiday, well, on a a tour, and it's a a great place to go. It's a a lovely, wide road, and, you know, there's a library there. It's not a library now. It's just a building. It's strange. They take you to the house where Mary was supposed to live, Jesus' mother, with them when John gave his mother to John to look after on the cross. They say, this is the house. Well, I'll tell you what, whoever built it can build my next one if it's still standing after all these years. 
Something more amazing. But there we are. It's an amazing place. But he's writing to the church. He's not writing to the city or the town. He's not saying, haven't you got nice columns in your thing? Haven't you got nice roads? Haven't you got a nice library? Not interested. He's talking to the people. I know your deeds. So as a church, God knows our deeds. He knew what Ephesus' deeds were. He knows what your deeds are and my deeds. He knows the last time I did an act of kindness, when I did something charitable to someone without reward or without applause. He knows our deeds. And he knows this church's deeds. And he says, you know, I I know your deeds. I know your hard work. You're a, you graft hard, you really do. You evangelize, you're really working hard. And your perseverance, it wasn't easy to be Christians in the Roman Empire. John was on the Isle of Patmos. That's how dangerous it was to be a believer. The sulfur mines, what a place to be. So they passed the test of service. They passed the test of endurance. You have persevered and endured hardship. They passed the doctrinal test. You have persevered there. Um, You that cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them false. So you work hard, you persevere, your doctrine is good. Some false apostles came in. Just because somebody gives themselves a title doesn't mean they are. You know that, don't you? You know, I'm told... I might be a pastor teacher after 50 years, but I'll let other people say it, not me. Other people have to give you titles. You don't take titles yourself. Other people have to recognize gifting in you appropriately in that way. So he's saying to them, listen, you've done so well. You've worked hard. You've persevered. Your doctrine is good. You know, you, you know when your doctrine's true, you'll know when falsehood arise, and you've dealt with them in that way. So... He's identified himself, he's commended them, but he's going to say something, but yet I hold against you, yet I hold this against you. Wow, what? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if the letter ended there? What was it? What, what, what could he find wrong with this church? They passed the service test, the hardship test, the doctrinal test. They got ticks, ticks, ticks all down the line. The car was going to pass the MOT. Till that tail light that no one told you about was out. No. Yet I hold this against you. You see, he is equally as passionate about his commendation as he is about his condemnation yet I hold this against you now if I came to you and said oh this is wrong and that's wrong you could you have every right to her and say well you're no better than me and you'd be right so who are you to tell me and I thought you know actually I, I think you're right other than if it's something that's affecting the church and your spiritual life and as a pastor I have responsibility before God to correct you but to just find fault but he had every right because he died for this congregation. He died for these people that they might be his. I have something against you. Do you know what I like here? He told them what he had against them. 
during my ministry, I've had people fall out with me and I didn't know they'd fallen out with me. They had something against me. I don't know what I did. I've got one occasion in my mind about a minister. Um, I won't um, tell the story now because I'm not, I'm trying to re remember it correctly and I don't want to do it wrongly in that way. But after a number of years, I discovered that a minister had something against me. In fact, I saw him at a meeting, oh, we're talking years ago, and I could just tell that his way with me was wrong. So I just went up to him and I said, will you do something for me? He said, what? I said, will you forgive me? For what? I said, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but will you forgive me? I could, and he just opened up to me that something had happened somewhere, I was able to put the matter right, and it, was, it wasn't trivial, but to him it was very important. You know? And at least Jesus didn't say, well, I'm not happy with the Ephesians, and oh, look at them, they're doing this, and this. He said, I'm going to tell you what's the matter. No talking, no gossiping. Didn't say to the angels, oh, look, what's happening here? Straight down, he said, I've got something against you. You have forsaken your first love. Wow. Yeah, but what about the good deeds? What about the perseverance? What about the doctrinal purity of the church? I don't know why I put that voice on. I just felt I needed to. You know, what about it? He says, you don't love me like you used to love me. Now, before any wives or husbands think I'm talking about marriage, I don't do marriage seminars. I stopped doing marriage seminars the day my wife stood at the back and was listening. <laughs> Ever since then, I've stopped doing. I think this was her posture. I don't do that. But Jesus just said, you don't love me like you used to love me. Oh, your working is hard. Your preaching is hard. Hang on, I'm a bit of self. Hang on, I'll stop now. You're doing everything you've got to do, but there's something missing. You don't love me like you used to love me. You've lost your first love. Now, before you think of, and it's natural to think of romance and falling in love, in that sense. But please, you will sell this message short if that's what you equate this with. When you first got, let me just ask you this, were you more enthusiastic for God when you first got saved than you are now? Don't answer it in your heart. Did you pray more when you first became a Christian? Did you witness more when you were a new Christian? Did you go to church more often? Well, I can't say that to you, good folk, because you're here before you did. Were you, did you read your Bible more than when you first... Now, you say, well, you're talking about things again. You're not talking about emotion. But you see, those things are often because of love. And that's the challenge for us. As Christians, if I ever love Jesus more than I love him now, am I not a member of the Ephesians church? Have I not lost my first love? This congregation, 
Was there ever a time that Kensington Temple served the Lord more fervently than it does now? I, I can't imagine it. You know? And that's why we check our hearts. That's why Jesus said to Peter when he was cooking the fish after the resurrection, Lovest thou me more than these things? Things are important. It's good that we pray. It's good that we serve. It's good that we have our doctrines. But if we've lost our first love, then what we are doing is not finding the acceptance that it really deserves because we're doing it out of routine. We're doing it out of a theological discussion. We're doing it because it's the thing to do. I know when I first became a Christian, and uh, like a lot of young men who became Christians as a teenager, I, I, I struggled uh, in the early days with my Christian. I still struggle now. It's just the struggle's different. I, I need less energy now. So the struggles are different. And there were times I went to church because my friends were there. All my worldly friends I had to leave behind. They were bad. And I got new friends in church. And maybe there were times I went to church because my friends were in church. Was I going for the Lord? I don't know, but I kept going and hopefully I was restored to the place where I should be. So he comes to them and he says there, I, you have forsaken your first love. And then he says these words to remember. To them, remember what? The height from which you have fallen. You know Ephesus. There was a time when you were higher up. You were closer to me than you are, for you have fallen. And that was the, the condemnation. You've fallen. Oh, you're still working. You're still preaching. You're still doing all these things. The Ephesus church was still looking good. When it did its conference report, it had a lot to say. But Jesus said, as far as I'm concerned, you've fallen. You're not where you were. And as he says it to our congregation in Ephesus, or to a group of churches in an area, he says it to Gordon Neal as well. Have I lost my first love? And then he tells them how to put the matter right. Do you know what? It's bad. Anybody that enjoys criticism, I'm, I'm, I'll be surprised. It's not pleasant. You have to have a, a strategy for coping with criticism. Mine is, listen to it because there's going to be an element of truth in this. Doesn't mean it's all truth, but there's going to be an element of truth in it. And my job is to find out what is truth and to uh, change Okay, in that way. That's how one of the things I have to do with it. But he comes to them and he says this, remember where you've fallen. Um, and then he says to them, repent. Why? Because, you see, it was a spiritual matter. It wasn't a work matter or a theological matter. It was, as far as God was concerned, to lose your first love is sinful. It's wrong. And they shouldn't have done it. And we shouldn't have done it if we have, and I'm not saying we have in that way. If you do not repent, remember we've fallen. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You have hated the practices of the Nicolaeans, which I also hate. 
So, I've got something against you. You've lost your first love. Remember. Go back. Remember. Go back. Remember when you got saved. Remember your baptismal service. You remember the first person you led to the Lord. Remember. Remember those things, okay? The things you did at first. If you do not repent, because this is a spiritual matter, I will remove your lampstand from its place. No church has a divine right to exist forever. And this church has stood firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ for so many years, I, I can't remember. Just so many years. But no church, this church, the Derby church where I pastored, has a divine right. If we fail, God has every right to remove our candlestick. Now, I don't think for one moment that that is the case. And, and there is no judge, judgmental criticism in my heart towards the church or to anyone. But he has that right. And you know why? Because we are his church. Amen. We're his church. If I got in your car to drive home, you'd say, hang on a minute, it's my car. And I said, well, it's better than mine. So, well, I don't care, it's my car. Well, move your own car. So Jesus can move his own candlesticks because the church is his. And I've almost finished. Thank you for listening. And then in verse 7, and he repeats this, um, he says this, to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes. So there is a picture given to us at the end of each of the letters of some people who are, I'm going to call them, overcomers. Now, bygone preachers used to talk about, there was a, not a teaching about overcomers, but it was a, a, a theme, and I remember my pastor speaking about overcomers. But there is a group of people who, if they listen to God, do what he says, to him that overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we have identification, who he is. We have commendation of what we have done. We have disapproval of where we have failed. We are given the antidote for it, which is to remember the first things and do them again, and to repent, lest God's judgment comes. And at the end of it, tantalizingly, there is held up before as a goal, to him that overcometh, I will give. And so you might think, oh, Gordon, I can't do it. I've tried so hard to... Well, look, please, you can do it. You can do it. You can go back to your first love. You can go home tonight and you can sit in quietness for a period of time and remember what God has done for you. And you can fall in love with him all over again. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's where I start. When I survey the wondrous cross, that's the point to start. Say, Gordon, I think that's, that could be me. I think I might be an Ephesus Christian. Well, listen, there's hope. Remember, put matters right, 
say you're sorry, and become an overcomer. And then, next time I'm with you on an evening, we'll be looking at two letters together because I wouldn't need the time for the introduction. And remember, he's walking amongst the candlesticks.